Welcome everyone. We'll still take some time. Um, we'll start on top of the hour, but um, give me a second. I'm posting the paper here on top of the room so people can have a look at it while we are waiting. And our guest speaker will give soon a TED talk actually about uh, his research and this topic. And this is kind of a nice preview of the TED talk that will be happening. So yeah, there's the paper. Feel free to check it out. Um, it's really interesting. And I'll hope yeah, and if you think of people that um, that would like to learn more about the, you know, environment and um, yeah, feel free to share, to share the room. Thank you so much. And Dr. Avril, he will be um, joining us from Switzerland and Zurich. Um, he, hi Manas, how are you? I hope you like this room. <laughs> hi Jonathan and hi Christina. Um, David Gunbold, Nithin, Nishk, Siva, Mayer. Welcome, everyone. I think this topic is really important. It's uh, kind of a upcoming TED Talk preview from Dr. Avril. And yeah, the paper is posted on top. I uh, hope, yeah, you enjoy it. And um, I'm looking forward to learn something from him so and i'm glad he could make it he's right now really busy to try to he has a foundation um to protect the um, um the microbiome of the earth especially uh different fungi um that are kind of uh, being threatened and um, yeah he is currently in the um, very busy uh, finding funds but he still made time for coming here for an hour so I'm really glad he did and um, yeah will be really interesting thank Jonathan for sharing the room And we'll start on top of the hour as usual. I just usually open up the room a little bit earlier because usually our guest speakers are new to Clubhouse. Um, and I just to give them a little bit of time to log in to come here uh, just in case they want to try things out first. Um, I'm always here a few minutes ahead of time. It's almost Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh, happy Thanksgiving. I hope that's okay to say it ahead of time. I don't know with rules and um, just to give a little bit of a preview so because it's Thanksgiving we won't have too many rooms and last week I was traveling so we only had one room so this week we have if you check um, if you go on our club and check the calendar uh, we have um, two rooms, uh, today's room, and then on Friday again, uh, Dr. Djakovic uh, will be talking about um, 
coexistent of modern humans and Neanderthals. He, they published, his group published very recently a paper that um, they found that humans and Neanderthals coexisted quite closely, way closer than we thought before uh, for a long time, um, based on recent findings. I think that's really interesting because a lot of our genome is kind of intertwined with Neanderthal genome and it has good sides and bad sides. And uh, I think the more we learn about that um, and of our past, the better. So I think this will be really exciting. And then next week, Monday, we'll have Dr. Sergi, um, who did really interesting research on black widows and how they have a really good spatial memory of where they captured their last prey um uh that is really interesting because you know this really um precise uh, spatial memory was shown in mammals but not necessarily in non-mammals before in that way and to to do that in spiders is really not that easy it's a pretty different way um, you know of how the brain is structured so that was quite amazing i had to invite him and then we'll have dr feldman um talking he publishes and works a lot on meditation and how it affects the brain and studies that uh, for many years now and um yeah he is, will be talking about that and how breathing patterns influence emotion uh, i think this will be really interesting <laughs> around the holidays that we learn about the holidays can be great and they can be stressful so i thought that was a great way to kind of have a room um talking about stress emotions and how breathing patterns can change them so yeah this is the preview for the this week and next week and um, yeah, we have a little bit of a lighter, usually we have like three to uh, four, five, sometimes even five rooms a week, but around the holidays we'll have less rooms. Um, and then in the new year, I still, I, I have already a few rooms in the new year and even a speaker that requested a spot in March, but it's um, it's still a lot that I will invite, um, depending on what will be published in this and next month. I try to stay as um, yeah as as new like the knowledge comes in like uh, when something gets published hi colin how are you can you hear me uh yeah oh perfect how are you today? hi i'm doing good how are you good good thank you we're just talking about the um, our upcoming program. <laughs> I usually open the rooms like a few minutes ahead of time uh, to give people time, you know, to arrive like the especially the speakers if they're new to Clubhouse and so on. So I was just talking about upcoming rooms and about your work <laughs> a little bit, just a little bit to not give too much away. <laughs> <laughs> well um people will be coming in and um we record the rooms just to let you know if that's okay with you because our members are really truly around the world so there's never time 
that works for many people. So, you know, the, the only way to solve this is to record them. And here on Clubhouse, the cool thing is when you listen to the recording here, you, the links that are available, like if you see on top of our icons, there's the link to your paper. Mm-hmm. Um, they are still active and also the chat is active because we usually share a lot of additionally, like additional resources in the chat, like it, it's all still active. So it's kind of almost the same experience. So that's why we like to do this on Clubhouse. So I hope that's okay with you. If not, I can turn the recordings off, but um, yeah. No, that sounds great. And thanks so much for organizing and thank you for dealing with me having to reschedule a few times. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, of course. Um, yeah, we are honored having you and, um, yeah, it's a pleasure. I'll give a short introduction and then I'll, um, I'll ask you a couple of interview questions if that's okay with you. And then uh, we go into your research and... um, um, Absolutely. Perfect. Okay. So um, welcome everyone to Science Society. And of course, a special welcome to Dr. Colin Avril. And um, he is um, at the Crosser Lab at the ETH Zurich. And um, what the team, the team works on um, different um, projects that are around uh, the forest microbiome, ecosystem, ecology, soils that are alive, and the diverse forest microbiome communities, and um, the profound impacts on um, the world. Um, and our world that these microbial communities have and um, how this diversity affects the trees, the forest and carbon sequestration uh, that also then uh, affects um, climate change and uh, how the diversity um, and population in the soil can maybe also um, give us a forecast of climate change. Um, <clears throat> in special, um, Dr. Averill is focused on the uh, fungi in the, um, in the soil. And um, I think this is such an interesting and really not well explored um, t- um, research field so far. So our first question is, um, how did you realize you were interested or you had like this passion to go into the field of research in general? Was it, did you always want to become a scientist or was it something that came up later? Maybe you took a class or you read a book. Uh, what, what kind of pulled you into this world? Thank you. Yeah, totally. Thanks so much for having me. Um, So I think I really got my start because I was trying to fulfill a a biology uh, requirement for another degree I was thinking about pursuing. And I took an ecology course and I could not believe that this person instructing us like studied butterflies for a living. I was like, that is insane. You're an insane person. How do I do this? Um, But I eventually got really excited about the role of, you know, microbiology. So all the bacteria and fungi and other organisms that live in soil and the role in climate um, through a professor where I did my undergrad at Boston University. I was washing dishes in a terrestrial ecosystem ecology lab, you know, where they studied the forest and how the forest works. And I learned that there was like two major uncertainties in climate science. Like we don't know how clouds work and we don't know how long the land surface. So all the forests and grasslands and other ecosystems on earth, how long will that system be able to continue removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere? And uh, I didn't know anything about clouds, but I was much more excited about forests. So I got started there. And then 
as I got to know that space better, I learned in these models that represent how a forest works and our best understanding, the thing we knew the least about in those what was what was happening in the soil and particularly with all the things that live in soil. And we had no way to measure it, but knew it was massively important. One of the biggest uncertainties in the terrestrial carbon cycle. And, and that's how I got excited about it. I was like, this, this is where we need to focus. And so, um, I think that was, that was really what triggered me and it still motivates me today. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, that's a, that's also an interesting story that um, you found that really cool that a person can make a living by studying these things. And I'm oftentimes um, had the, also this kind of uh, feeling that I was getting paid for doing a hobby um, at some point. So I kind of, yeah. <laughs> kind of get that and, you know, um, I really, um, yeah. And then the next question would be for this specific, you know, paper. And then also, um, I know that you have, um, you're a co-founder of the Spun Society for the protection of underground networks. Um, is there a, maybe a background story around that? Like how, this specific paper came about, but also maybe your foundation when um, or the organization, is there like a, was it hard to get it off the ground? Were people very excited um, or are people very excited about it? And is it easy to get funding for, you know, um, let's, if you have something around that, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'm, I'm the co-founder of a nonprofit called SPUN, which stands for the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks. It's focused on the conservation of mycorrhizal fungi. So mycorrhizal fungi are these fungi that form a symbiosis with the roots of plants. They're in basically every ecosystem on Earth. Uh, there's actually evidence when plants first made the evolutionary tr transition from living in water to living on land, they evolved this partnership uh, with their fungi and their roots before they even evolved roots. And so th this symbiosis is really ancient and it's fundamental to how, you know, basically all plants access growth limiting soil resources. There's incredible biodiversity of these fungi all over the world. So the fungi you find in, you know, pine forests are going to be wildly different than the ones you find in an oak forest or in a temperate grassland or in a mangrove. Um, but we also know that this biodiversity is actually increasingly coming under threat. That's driven by large scale pollution we put into the environment, like nitrogen deposition. That's driven by land use change, us converting ecosystems from natural systems into really intensively managed ones. And so we were motivated to found SPUN uh, by that. You know, there was this sort of hidden extinction going on before our eyes, before we even really had a chance to really document this biodiversity and understand where it was. And the motivation for this paper was to really make that point more broadly. It's not just mycorrhizal fungi, it's to all the organisms and the microbial life that lives in soils and on and inside plants and animals. All of this is incredibly important to, you know, the health of people, the health of plants, the functioning of soils. Um, and we're only now just beginning to understand what's happening. Um, a big part of that I want to emphasize is also, you know, we really just never had the tools to look at this before. So people had studied soil biology in a lot of different ways, um, but fundamentally it was hard. And all of that changed about 15 years ago when environmental microbiologists started applying the tools of the human genome project. So these next generation sequencing technologies that made that possible and, and using them in the environment um, and started documenting all the biodiversity that lives in soil. It, it was the first time we could really sort of turn the lights on below ground and see, you know, the variety of life that lives there. And what we saw was astounding. The, bio, the microbial biodiversity in soil is outrageous. There's easily a thousand coexisting species, microbial species in a single handful of soil. 
And only in the past, you know, five years has that DNA sequencing technology become really cheap enough so that we can do these, we can look at the soil microbiome at the kind of spatial scales we really need to understand, you know, a global picture of the biodiversity that lives in soils. So all of these things sort of came together at the right time. And as we put together those pieces of information, what we're learning is actually a lot of it's massively under threat uh, from things like, you know, converting, converting forests into intensive agriculture, clear cutting forests, et cetera. Um, so I, I hope I answered some of your question. There were a lot of parts, but happy to go back in any, any part of it. Yeah, that's, um, that's wonderful that you and, you know, your team members created this organization. Um, and, um, because so much is unknown, I would imagine it was, were many people advising you against doing it? I, I can imagine that since it, it's such an unknown field, um, or maybe the opposite, people were totally, like, was there anyone giving you advice that um, was against or for it? Um. Maybe not directly advice, but I, there were definitely lots of signals that I should be focused on something else. So I spent a lot of my career has been spent in rooms with, you know, ecosystem modelers and, and climate scientists trying to understand, you know, why don't we represent these key components of biodiversity in the models we build to to simulate the capacity of forests and other ecosystems to act as carbon sinks if they are so important. And so really trying to, to make that clear, understand why it hasn't happened and you know, what information that larger community needs to incorporate uh, and appreciate these components of biodiversity. Um, and so through that process, you know, I met a lot of people working on plant physiology and um, community ecology and lots of things directly adjacent to microbiology in the in the environment, but um, it really was a process and has been a process for environmental bio microbiologists to to really bring this this aspect of biology to the forefront of people's minds when they're talking about climate modeling, when they're talking about ecosystem restoration, when they're talking really about biodiversity conservation writ large. Yeah, I yeah I agree. It's uh, so important and. You know, there's, I don't know, after forest, like um, fires, people attempt to replant things, but I guess the soil um, microbiome diversity probably until now got really ignored. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you're here and that you will educate us about this. So I posted the the link to like a link to the paper PDF that everyone can access on top. And um, yeah, thank you so much, Colin. And the stage is yours. Awesome. Yeah, so I think I think to start, it's really too important to just dig a little deeper to understand what you know microbes are and really what they they do for us um, as people and and what they do for the, the broader, you know, broader biology, plants and animals. And so microbes actually are in many ways the majority of Earth's biodiversity. You know, there are millions of species of microscopic fungi. There are billions of species of prokaryotes like bacteria and archaea. These organisms were the very first life forms to evolve and inhabit our Earth, and they'll probably be the very last. And so we find micro microorganisms and microbial life in nearly every habitat on Earth. They live in the atmosphere, they live in and on plants, they live in our bodies where they have profound effects on health, they live in animals' bodies, and they completely dominate the soil environment. These are the organisms that do decomposition and they power really important soil functions like nutrient cycling, which in turn allows productivity on land to happen. Um, the healthy functioning of your body is really dependent on microorganisms, uh, as is the healthy functioning of plants. Uh, and they represent this incredible variety 
or biodiversity across the planet. So, you know, if you go to one forest and look at what's living in the soil and then you walk 100 meters away, you can find a totally different community of microorganisms. They're just that heterogeneous and diverse. Um, but as we study this, this component of biodiversity more, we're coming to understand it's under threat, just like macrobiological diversity. So just like we're seeing declines in plant and animal and insect populations, it seems that we're also you know, seeing declines in microbial taxa as well. So this was first really documented, as far as I can tell, um, by a mycologist and amateur sort of mushroom hunters. So mushrooms are really interesting because they sort of live this dual life as both a microbiological organism and a macrobiological organism, you know, but, you know, the the mushroom you pick is just the tip of the iceberg and below that it kind of just dissolves into this unseeable but huge mycelial network so the mycelia is like the body and the roots of a fungus and most of it lives underground but you see this little macroscopic signal of it when it puts up a mushroom so people have been documenting uh mushroom biodiversity for you know really really over a century in Europe. And they were some of the first to show that, wow, there's this incredible decline in the biodiversity, the number of species we see coming up year after year at a continental scale. And later, uh, ecologists would discover that a lot of that's linked to nitrogen pollution. So when we burn fossil fuels, we emit CO2, but we also emit all of this sort of nitrogen gas that eventually rains down as fertilizer and actually decimates the communities of these mushroom forming fungi. And so this was really the first evidence and thing, things have changed now that we can see the soil microbiome in its entirety using DNA sequencing. And so this really gets to the first part of this paper. We break it into three sections and the first section is titled map and protect. So you really can't manage what you don't measure. And in that vein, we really need, just like if you were trying to monitor you know, declines of plant biodiversity, you'd need to know where plant biodiversity is today to say whether it's been lost or gained. And so this is really what the work of SPUN does and a lot of members of my team do. Uh, we use DNA sequencing and machine learning mapping platforms to really map the biodiversity of these organisms for the first time. Get understanding, you know, where where's the Amazon rainforest, but for mycorrhizal fungi, for example, um, because those teach us, you know, wh which places and by looking in places that are degraded as well. So like intensive agriculture, we can begin to understand where we've likely lost components of microbial biodiversity. Um, so using those mapping platforms um, is really key because you know we need this baseline because we know we're we're likely losing other components of microbial biodiversity but it needs to be documented and so people like there's a team called global fungi in prague and the czech republic have done an amazing job synthesizing more than twenty thousand dna profiles collected all over the world they've gone through the literature and extracted the data so that we can actually do this kind of work and we're really hoping that people will begin, you know, doing similar things for bacteria and archaea and all the other life forms that live in the soil and live on the leaves of plants and everywhere else, all those different, these different components of microbial life. Second, we actually mapped not only what we did know, but what we don't know. We made a basically an exploration priorities map in this paper. We said, where are all the places where we don't have a microbial sample? And what do they look like with respect to the environment? You know, are there places in environmental space, unique, you know, places with certain seasonalities of rainfall and uh, temperature that we just haven't captured in our existing sampling? Or are there places that just are really distant and geographically far from where we've ever observed the microbiome? And that's one way we can begin to prioritize, you know, exploration efforts. And so what we see is some things you might expect uh, we know a lot about North America and Europe and China. We know far less about the tropics. So the Amazon rainforest is massively 
unexplored with respect to its microbiological diversity. So is the entire continent of Africa. So is Southeast Asia. Um, but there's also some unexpected places. Uh, you know, basically the entire boreal forest of Russia, which is a huge ecosystem, has never been really sampled in a way that's accessible to existing academics. And this is really worrying to us because it's actually a predicted hotspot of biodiversity for some of these symbiotic fungi, these fungi that form this partnership with the roots of trees. And they're not hotspots of plant diversity, which is really interesting to us as well. But you know, that's one of these things these, these mapping, mapping efforts can do for us. They can help us identify where we should be focusing our effort to get the most gain out of the resources we have available to do this kind of work. So one thing SPUN has been doing uh, is actually going out using these maps we've generated to actually prioritize who we give small grants to. So we give small grants to, to scientists that live in and are from the places that are massively underexplored and we basically give them the money they need to go do a sampling expedition so we can refine our picture there and we arrange for all the DNA sequencing work so that you know the work gets done up to spec and is compatible with the rest of our data sets. Um, so this is just a really important thing we need to do. We really need, it's, I mean, it's incredible that we don't have it. Like everything relies on microbiological biodiversity. Um, the more we look, the more we see how massively important it is. And yet it's just remarkable how little we've invested in documenting it. Um, so this is really big, map and protect. We need to know what we have better to really fully appreciate what's at risk and what we're losing. Um, the second part of the paper is really about restoration. So it's one thing to say what we're losing. It's another thing to put it back though. And there, we're witnessing a global movement to do large scale ecosystem restoration around the world. And this, this was really kicked off by interest from carbon markets. So because of climate change, we know not only do we need to stop emitting CO2, We've given climate inaction to date. We now also need to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. One of the best ways to do that is by restoring natural ecosystems, particularly forests. Uh, and now there's increasing interest in doing that, you know, in a biologically and ecologically responsible way. We don't want to just plant like monocultures or single species of like eucalyptus everywhere just because it grows fast and sequesters carbon quickly, we want to rebuild native ecosystems to the extent that's still possible. So doing responsible restoration is thinking about not just planting trees, but reassembling ecosystems that are biodiverse and capture that native biodiversity that used to inhabit the landscape. But when we plant a tree, we rarely think to quote unquote plant the associated microbiome. So all the other organisms that's really dependent on. And in some, many environments where restoration happens are ex-agricultural environments. So places that have been intensively farmed uh, for decades and sometimes centuries. And we know the microbiology in those places looks nothing like the microbiology of the native landscapes we're trying to restore. And so one way this is beginning to be done is through what are called soil transplants. So when we, I think it, to understand this, it's useful to think about what's done in human microbiology. So we know the bacteria that live in your gut have a profound impact on your health. And if you lose certain components of that biodiversity, you can become remarkably sick. Uh, but, you know, pioneering medical microbiologists discovered that if you take a microbial community from a health, healthy person, you can re-inoculate and reintroduce uh, microbial biodiversity into a sick person and cure some of these diseases. That's really like microbial e ecosystem restoration, but for your body. Uh, and that's actually done through a fecal transplant. And that's because the feces that pass through your gut actually capture and retain a lot of that microbiological diversity and can therefore be used as an inoculant. In the ecosystem case, you know, the thing that does digestion is the soil and the soil is where this incredible microbial biodiversity lives. So we can take small quantities of soil and use it as an inoculant. 
And so there's some places around the world where this has such a remarkable effect. So one of my favorite examples is there, there's these, these uh, grasslands in Eastern Europe and Estonia that have been decimated due to mining activity. And when they go to try and restore them, it generally just doesn't work. Uh, but if you introduce the microbial community at the same time as you introduce the plants, all of a sudden that restoration becomes possible. And there's these remarkable images of just like with versus without sort of this microbiome treatment and it's just night and day. Uh, and people have done this in other systems and forests. In this paper, we synthesize uh, over 80 experiments where people have done this. And what we see is the results are re remarkably variable, but on average, very positive. So on average across studies, we see biomass accumulation recovery goes up by 64% compared to control, which is a lot. Uh, but it can vary from nothing to, you know, huge amounts, six, 700% were the highest effect sizes we saw. And, you know, one thing we need to do next is really understand why that is. We think a big part of it is, again, we need this, these maps. We need to know what an intact microbial community is so we can sex successfully sort of rewild it into the soil. Um, and the DNA sequencing work allows us to do that. I think it's really easy, and I've seen this done, is you go and try and do this microbiome transplant, but you go to a forest that seems fine and would seem fine to me or you and intact, but really is regenerated only 20 years ago. And it's just no one knows the previous uh, land use history. And unless you're a forester or someone with some real natural history expertise in the area, you, you might not get that right. Um, so we need to get a bit more sophisticated in this approach, but where it works, it's, it's remarkable how well it works. Um, and so, you know, what is a forest? Have we really restored a forest if it's missing its fungi? Um, so this is a big thing we need to do. You know, when we think about doing ecosystem restoration responsibly, we, we, we think about, you know, the biodiversity outcomes for sure. And not only do we need to be getting the tree species right and the, the animals right, we also need to be thinking about the microbial life as well if we really you know, want to do this in a very ecologically responsible way. And I guess I feel like I've been talking forever, so I'm going to try and wrap it up. The last thing we talk about is this opportunity in managed ecosystems. So, you know, food and forest agriculture you know, represents one of the dominant uses of land on earth. Something like 50% of the arable land on earth is in some form of agriculture. And historically, what we've done in agriculture is really an exercise in reductionism. We identify high performing plant species and then strains of those species. And then we selectively breed them. And now we genetically modify them. And then finally, we plant them out in vast monocultures. So a single plant species, as far as you can see. And to be clear, this has produced, you know, very productive ecosystems, but we're also coming into understand those ecosystems are remarkably fragile, increasingly sensitive to extreme events and novel pathogens. They're incredibly reliant on chemical inputs. We're now coming to understand have really serious consequences. However, we have yet to really begin tinkering and playing and modifying what organisms live in the soil alongside of those plants. And we now have the data and the computational tools and the theory to start taking a different approach rather than reducing and trying, trying to create a microbial monoculture below ground, just do the same thing you did in plants. What if we went the other way? What if we leaned into complexity and biodiversity and tried to make these systems reservoirs of below ground microbial life and biodiversity. And by doing so, can we do that in a way that also creates positive outcomes for, for plant nutrition and yields and carbon capture and all the other services we ask of these ecosystems. And so th there's huge opportunity here, right? Like can't, you know, in, there's a big movement now in regenerative agriculture asking, you know, how in what ways can we construct these agro ecosystems such that they can hold on to a bit more biodiversity, create habitats for pollinators and other animals? And I think when we apply that lens to soil biology, you, there's this ex super exciting world of possibilities here. Um, so that's really the, the last section of the paper. And so 
these are the things we, we think are really critical to, to get on people's radar and into the conversation in both, you know, restoration and ecology and microbiology is, you know, there's this important work of documenting microbial life on earth and where it's being lost. And if we're going to make intelligent conservation decisions, we really need to map the world's microbiology so we can protect it. We need to fold this into restoration, both because it's an important component of biodiversity and because it can create amazing outcomes for the recovery of ecosystems as well. And then finally, there's this huge opportunity in agriculture to, to build biodiversity into the managed landscape and also create you know, all these outcomes we wanna see in the world. Um, and so that's really what we did. I hope some of that makes some sense. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to go back and forth and, and go a little bit deeper on any part of it. Well, thank you so much, Colin. This was a wonderful overview and talk. And um, it's, it's really interesting. We had a guest speaker, he's a PhD student, that was kind of by chance that his supervisor had at some point collected samples from a forest. And then um, there was a mega fire. Um, he explained the exact definition, which I don't wanna go into it. And then they collected samples afterwards and they found that a different uh, fungi make it through those mega fires, others don't, but they don't know yet um, if that's good or bad. Like, are those that survive good? Do, will they help to restore, uh, you know, a forest, or are they actually maybe even, you know, hurtful for the future? So, um, is there, you know, is there also a plan once we we know more? to kind of uh, build up resilience for the future uh, with the climate predictions we have, let's say it will be drier or um, more humid or warmer to kind of figure out a way to, to make those transplants uh, to kind of protect that, that environmental, like that landscape, that specific one for the future kind of prepare it is is there a plan to do that maybe yeah wow that like like sort of like assisted migration but for the microbes I, yeah that's a great point i hadn't thought too much about that but it totally makes sense and and when we're doing ecosystem restoration more and more we're asking you know are these organisms not only going to survive the climate of today but will they also survive the climate of tomorrow um and we know certain organisms are locally adapted to different environmental regimes and some microorganisms can even imbue drought tolerance onto plants. Um, so there's a lot of different interesting po possibilities here. Um, and something that, so, yeah, I think hopefully will be incorporated more and more. We, we don't have a, we're not doing that yet, but it's definitely on our radar. Is there also, um, people that are working on bioengineering maybe create a network that um, sucks up more water and, and kind of stores it for plants, you know, all this, it's kind of still in the same. Or do you think that's a bad idea? Because we just don't know the outcome of bioengineering those, um, yeah, the microbiome, basically. Yeah. I think the most interesting and exciting work in microbial bioengineering is identifying ways we can work with not just like one or two super high performing species, but actually using whole communities of organisms um, and asking, can we create both a biodiversity outcome and an outcome for the thing you're trying to engineer for? So uh, we recently founded a company called Funga to translate some of this work into climate biodiversity action. And where we're focused first is in forestry, actually. So um, we're starting the Loblolly Pine Forests of the Southeast United States. This is one of the biggest sort of agricultural crops in the country. Um, you know, there's 30 million acres of these pines. And we're asking, you know, can we 
you know, identify communities of native and biodiverse fungi that naturally associate with these trees that are also linked to productivity and yield outcomes. And then by doing so, can we essentially do, you know, below ground microbial rewilding and in the process create productivity and a climate outcome? And so it, it's definitely a form of engineering, but it's, it's placing sort of the biodiversity and complexity component at the center. And I think, you know, there's opportunity to take that kind of approach in so many different areas. Um, and I think that's really exciting. There's definitely also groups historically and now even more so today who, who do the traditional ag thing, identify some high performing fungi, uh, one species, and then apply it everywhere. Um, and we really worry about that because there's this huge potential to sort of just repeat the mistakes we've made in above ground agriculture below ground. So I think there's a lot of opportunity here to just fundamentally rethink how we do that microbial engineering in a way that, you know, doesn't over-engineer for one outcome at the expense of all the rest. Yeah, thank you. And my hope is that, um, yeah, that that will be the case to focus on diversity. And I kind of have a little bit more hope because of the technology that are available nowadays do you think that there's more hope because we just have the ability to go through more data sets on a larger scale and make models with more you know higher complexity levels and um so do you think that was the reason why people before yet yeah, did this, you know, quite of limited approach, but is there hope because of, you know, us going through more data, having kind of machine learning and all of this available that, you know, maybe hopefully a lot of groups will have a more, uh, yeah, complexity scale approach. Yes, yes, yes to all of it. I think so. I think, you know, if you think about the things that enable this, like, A, we couldn't even collect, you know, the data at a meaningful scale 10, 20 years ago uh, because we either didn't have the technology or it was too expensive to roll out at scale and do frequently. Um, then even if we did have the data, it became a compute problem once you had that much data because one, one observation of the microbiome is like, you know, thousands of species frequencies, and that is just like a few megabytes. It, it very quickly becomes enormous amounts of data. And if you want to do this at a large scale with lots of repeated measures, it becomes insurmountable with the tech we were using even 10 years ago. Um, but that's completely changed too. And that technology and theory and new computing algorithms uh, allow us to take sort of different computational approaches than we've ever been able to before that allow us to see signal a lot sooner in a lot more different ways and actually explore the full sort of breadth of what's in these incredibly rich biodiversity profiles. So yeah, I, I, I'm definitely hopeful as well. I don't think this would have been possible, you know, it, even in the near past. I want to thank you for that answer and um, for answering my questions. Kiku, I wanted to give you an opportunity to ask before I go on and on. So um, thanks, Kiko, for coming and uh, ask away. Maybe he stepped away from the phone. <laughs> okay, I'll um, I'll keep um, asking. Is there are currently um, also governments interested in your work? I would hope so, but you know, I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, because I would imagine that this approach would be kind of uh, an interest in securing uh, food resources for the future and also for, you know, national safety, uh, you know, staying more resilient. So, yeah, thanks. 
Yeah, totally. So, so government funding agencies are absolutely funding uh, research into the ecosystem microbiome and agriculture and beyond. Um, some have funded sort of real large scale sampling programs. Um, Australia comes to mind specifically. So is China. Um, so as you know, the EU has an incredibly well done. They basically added this component of microbial biodiversity to this incredible soil survey they do called the Lucas Soil Survey. And so, yeah, we're seeing more and more uptake there. Um, we're seeing more interest on the philanthropic side, which, you know, Spun engages with. Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely a lot more government interest than really I think has ever been in environmental microbiology, at least, you know, biodiversity science and microbiology before. Interesting. That's, I'm glad to hear. I remember when I did my first postdoc at the Marine Biological Laboratory on Cape Cod, the um, co-director of NSF was there to give a talk what we should do for grants and how we should pick our career. And he basically <laughs> said, just switch to plant physiology and related to agriculture. <laughs> <laughs> we're all kind of, you know, in different fields. <laughs> you said, oh, you can do this in the lab. Just switch because that's where all the money will be. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, I don't know how that is really true right now, but um, that's the advice he gave. So maybe NSF <laughs> is a place <laughs> should ask for funding. And, um, Welcome, Ayab and Philip. Uh, thanks for coming. Um, yeah, just ask your question. Thank you. Hey, good morning, everybody. I just have a quick scan at your uh, research, and it's uh, it's amazing. Uh, just a quick question. Did, I'm like I'm trying to figure out how this is gonna work out. Did you ever consider like a species species interaction? Like if you have this strain of anaerobes versus fungi versus what the clostridium. Uh, I guess uh, microbiome. I'm, I'm, and I'm referring to a human gut. Thank you. Yeah, so there's there's more and more work on sort of how the co-occurrences of species, so not just the presence of single species, but the presence of two or more species in combination uh, is predictive of, you know, outcomes versus just, yeah, the individual species one at a time. What we find, most of my work is in forests and, you know, we've done, you know, a similar work to the human microbiome project, but instead sequencing forests and looking at forest health outcomes, we find the best predictors of forest health are almost always community level predictors. So predictors that have information, not about, about the presence of all of the organisms in the sample rather than focusing in on an individual species or strains and so it's likely that's because of these interactions you're describing and i believe you know that's been the challenge in scaling up human microbiome work right we we know these sort of these low-tech approaches can work really well fecal transplants where you move the whole system but developing sort of custom probiotics where you add just a couple of species has proven challenging and one leading hypothesis is is because it's they're too simplistic um, and they need all those co-occurring species to really do well yes i'm very aware about the stool transplants in the 60s and i think yeah you're right you can do it like a simplistic approach because i think you have to match like the growth curve like like the saturation decline raising a and how they interact with each other in a specific environment, either at forest or a human colon or a human gut versus any other environment. All right. Yes, that's that was great. Thank you. Of course. Uh, yeah, thank you for that question. And I wanted to give a follow-up comment that the diversity in the human microbiome is also declining. Do you think that's related to lifestyle changes that we don't, I don't know, kids don't play in dirt anymore. We keep sterilizing them and also the dirt they play in that's probably not diverse anymore in cities and so on. I'm not an expert in human microbiology, um, though I do love to draw analogies to it, but there are 
results showing like babies born via C-section, for example, have measurably different uh, communities of microbes in their bodies than those not. They think it's because one of the first place, you're basically sterile inside the womb and the first place you uh, experience microbiology and have it colonize your body is, is when you leave the vaginal tract. Uh, so that's a colonization event that, for example, some people don't get now uh, because of technology. And so, you know, doctors are experimenting with doing things like vaginal swabs of babies when they're born for via C-section for this reason. Um, we also know like eating dirt is just like a thing young kids do, which is a really interesting behavior and um, may be linked to stuff like this. But also, yeah, we, we don't spend the same amount of time uh, outside. And we also have sort of massively designed our landscapes and our built environment in a way that's like focused on sterility and killing everything. Um, rather than trying to think about like, how do we make sure we have microbes here, but the right microbes. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think so many different things about the way we live has massively affected sort of this really important component of our biology and our health that, that we haven't really appreciated until recently. Yeah, thank you. And um, Philip, you had the question. Thanks for waiting. No, thanks, uh, Katharina, for hosting this space. And thanks, Colin, for sharing your, your, your experience and, and expertise. Um, yeah, you know, I think about this recent Living Planet report by WWF, which states that the planet has lost 69% of its uh, wildlife population sizes since 1970 over the past 50 years. So population sizes of animals generally on average have shrunk by almost 70%. Some areas that's much worse. And, you know, they surveyed more than 5,000 uh, animals, uh, birds and reptiles and fish, etc. Um, and, uh, I mean, in some places, like I said, this, uh, this impact is much worse. But I'm wondering how this, this dumbing down of diversity impacts a microbial life in the soils. Because I would, you know, that saying, as above, so below. So the diversity that you see above is a kind of a reflection of the of the diversity that you see below. So I'm just wondering if you can link uh, the, the, those two, the decline in animal life and then the decline in the, in the microbes. And then my second question uh, relates to forests. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm sure you're talking about real forests when you talk about forests, because when we talk about forests here in South Africa, where I live, um, it's industrial monoculture timber plantations of mostly invasive alien species like pines from Mexico and eucalypts from Australia. They are maintained and managed as the mother of all monocultures. I mean, you go inside there, there's no sounds, there's no insects, there's no birds, because there's no food for indigenous animals to eat. So I'm wondering what the impact on the, on the, on the, on the, on the soil micro life is by this dumbing down of diversity and, I'm, I'm, and, and if you can link that to the long-term sustainability of the soil, can we continue with this model of forestry without suffering serious soil and nutrient deficiencies? Thanks a lot for the opportunity to ask. Yeah, I love both those questions. Um, so the first one, you know, how can declining wildlife populations actually impact what's going on in the soil? in so many different ways. I mean, we know wildlife has these huge effects on which species live and die in a forest, both above ground, but also they can be really important dispersal agents of microorganisms. So, you know, people have observed like certain plants in certain areas were only colonizing where feral hogs also would, had range and habitat. And the reason for that was, is because many of these plant species couldn't successfully establish and grow to maturity until, you know, basically the symbionts they needed arrived there as well. And those symbionts were really dependent on these feral hogs for moving around because they dig in soil and therefore move soil and all the organisms that live in the soil around. Um, so, you know, this is, this is pretty understudied. There's not a lot of research on it, but it's just really hard to imagine given the ways we know animals interact with soil and move things around like that it's not having an impact on the biodiversity of what lives in the soil. 
As for, uh, you know, intensive timber plantations. So yeah, around the world, you know, especially in the Southern hemisphere, you know, a lot of exotic trees are planted, particularly pines and also eucalyptus, just like you described. Um, if you look at the, the micro, so I focus on these root fungi. If you look at the, the diversity of root fungi on like those exotic pines, it's incredibly simplified. So radiata pine is a big one normally, and it's, it's native habitat. It's one of the most planted trees in the world, but it's native habitat is like this really tiny area on the California coast. And if you look at the number of species, you know, living in symbiosis with its roots, like any one tree easily has like, you know, 50 to 100 different organisms there. If you go to these exotic radiata pine plantations in Australia, for example, you see something like five, maybe 10, species and so it's this incredibly small you know subset of what's naturally there i wouldn't be surprised if the same things were going on with the eucalypts in south africa because their native range is in australia and then finally because they're housing these microbes they're displacing a lot of other microbes that would normally partner with the native vegetation i think you know especially in forest, we have this revolution going on around these concepts in regenerative agriculture. Can we do agriculture in a more sustainable way that's less resource use intensive, that builds soil environments, um, that creates climate and biodiversity outcomes, or is at least more compatible with biodiversity? And I think we really need to bring that same sort of thinking to forestry. Can we do forest, you know, we, in many ways, you know, Timber's not going away. In fact, you know, the built environment, like we want to get concrete and steel out of it uh, because they're so greenhouse gas intensive. And if we can build with more timber and less those things, that could be a win. But can we do that in a way that's far more aligned with the biodiversity that inhabits our planet and do that in a far more sustainable way? We need to we need to really rethink, you know, the the single factor optimization we've done up until this point in forestry. Um, Katarina, I have to jump off the phone, but I just wanted to say um, thank you so much for the opportunity and your work and the chance to just share this research with a, a broader audience. We think it's so important to share and have people hear about this and, and you know, work like yours gets that done. Well, thank you so much, Colin, um, for taking the time. And um, yeah, thank you for doing this work. For using your brains to do this and not, I don't know, work on Wall Street or something. I wonder if I can have time for one more question to Colin. Colin, uh, I don't know. Maybe you can send me the question and I can ask Colin um, later on because he's really oh, okay. busy right now. He is also planning to give a TED talk. So follow Colin on Twitter and um, uh, that you will get updates and I'm sure Colin will be happy to to answer questions later on and maybe Colin comes back <laughs> <laughs> yeah happy to happy to do some answers in writing too um, okay, thank perfect. you so much everyone it's been awesome okay wonderful and good luck for everything uh, I hope you get all the funding you can get and um, and uh, yeah uh, you, you know, people should fund you and and support you the best they can. So good luck for everything and thank you again. Thank you. So long, everyone. And uh, yeah, we have one room this week. Uh, we had to reschedule a room that was supposed to be tomorrow. Um, and uh, it will be on Friday. It's a light schedule this week because in the US it's Thanksgiving week. Um, so it's kind of a busy week with traveling and family. Um, so Dr. Djakovic on Friday will talk about uh, the coexistence of modern humans and Neanderthals, how they live together quite closely actually um, um, for really a long time so it will be a really interesting room going back to our origins and coexisting with other um, species so uh, if you think that's interesting join us again and then next week 
we have Dr. Sergei talking about black widow spiders and how he found that they have a really good spatial memory of their prey. It's really interesting how he did that because usually we do this type of work in mammals, so it'll be really exciting. And um, Dr. Feldman will talk about uh, breathing patterns and influence of on emotion, like he's been doing many years research in how meditation affects brain, um, our brain and um, our behavior and so on. So uh, he's a he published books like he's a really wonderful researcher in that area. And I feel like during the holiday season, it's especially good to keep our emotions at bay. Um, so yeah, uh, I think that will be interesting. And then We'll have Dr. Cohen talking about autonomous micro robots with artificial brains, um, which will be really interesting. Uh, we'll have many implications for future technology. And uh, Dr. Simic, ancient art, um, cave art discovery with 3D photogrammetry. Um, so he will talk about this technology and about the research um and applications of that technology in um in archaeology so um i hope um you enjoyed this room uh and i to hear you all back soon and thanks for the question thank you everyone close the room in three two one bye everyone thank you